Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. All right. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Aaron Chapman. Aaron is a 21-year veteran in the financing industry with a focus on real estate investing and investors. He has a team of 11 staff members who are fabulous, by the way. We work with them all the time. But his focus is on financing investment loans. Aaron has become a good friend of mine over the years. He's been married 22 years, has four kids, and he continues to volunteer with the local sheriff's department in the rescue unit, and he's been doing that for about nine or 10 years now. So, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, brother. Good to be with you, man. It's good to have you back. I know I see you pretty frequently throughout the year. We're doing something a little different here this time. Normally, my podcast is audio only, but you and I decided kind of uh, last minute here to record this on video. So I'm going to make this video available on our YouTube channel so people can see some of the charts and graphs that uh, you're going to be popping up on the screen. However, if you're listening to this in the car or you know you just got your iPhone or iPod in and you can't see these, we're going to describe what is being shown so that way you have a, an understanding without having to actually see the charts. So, Aaron. So we'll do our best to make it make sense to you when you're trying to figure this out from a, uh, from a freeway perspective. Exactly. So, Aaron, we're not going to talk specifically about loan products and interest rates here. This is kind of more uh, broad macro and economic perspective on what rates are doing, where they've been, where we're going, how it's going to impact you as a real estate investor. How do you take advantage of, of the uh, lending environment today? all those good things. So I'm not sure where you want to begin, but I guess maybe let me tee it off by just saying that a lot of people ask us the question, what are rates doing? Where are we headed? It's kind of a crystal ball question sometimes, but why don't you just start off by giving us some commentary on that? And that is a very common question for myself. And I know that that, common, that question does route its way through your team quite often. And so that is something I've tried to spend a lot of time understanding. In fact, to the point that I've had some people come up to me after presentations where I speak publicly, there's like, what is it you do again? Are you an economist or are you a wealth management guy? So, oh, I'm, a, I'm a lender. I do just a regular Fannie Freddie mortgages, the uh, 20% down stuff. So if you're looking to buy houses for investments, single family, two, uh, duplex, triplex, fourplex, I mean, there's other options we've got beyond that that I have access to. And even beyond the 10 finance properties of Fannie Mae, we got some cool 30-year loans with that. That's what breads my table. But I find it's necessary that a person in my position should understand what's driving that market, what's driving the interest rates, what would we expect as real estate investors, because I'm an investor myself, for the future. So the way that I answer that question is to go backwards, to understand what, uh, what has actually created this whole process to begin with. You've seen The Big Short, right? Great movie. Bought it, watched it three or four times. I, I'll bet you I've seen it 10, 12 times. I've got it on every one of my electronic devices. I've got it on my phone. I can go to my uh, <laughs> my Google account and I've got it downloaded on there. So if I'm on a plane or an airport, I can go watch it again because there's tons of little good nuggets in there. And I tell all my investors, I ask those who, uh, what, you know, those who I do ask if they've seen it. If they haven't, I tell them they've got homework that weekend, watch it at least three times. Because what it does, it takes you all the way back to the beginning. Lou Ranieri was the name of the individual working for Solomon Brothers that created the mortgage-backed security. What it was, was he was able to convince pension funds to take their funds and invest it into 
you know, instead of investing into stocks or regular bonds or currencies or commodity trading of any sort, they convince them to go into a pool of funds that they could, that the banking industry can pull from and use to fund mortgages. And the security was, is your, your one, you're securitizing a piece of real estate. So you've got that. And then you have a person's a promise to repay. So you have two real security instruments, if you will, a note and a lien on a piece of property. And one of the famous statements in that movie is, who the hell doesn't pay their mortgage? Well, then it fast forwards into the 2008 range and you get to see who the hell doesn't pay their mortgage because we see where the social experiment of giving people homes that can't afford them failed. Right. So what that does is it illustrates really what happened in the market. We had a lot of people that were, we ran out of people borrowing money in a way. I didn't say we ran out, but it started to run leaner. There was less people borrowing it than there was willing to lend it through those channels back in the uh, early, in the mid nineties. And that's when you start seeing them getting creative with the zero down loans. And then you start getting into the, uh, the no income loans and no asset loans. And then it came all crashing down. And anybody who had their money in that market pulled it all out. So at the end of 2007, right around August 2007, we started to see the, um, that dry up. There's not a lot of money to lend. Right. Well, then you get into late 2008, where the Federal Reserve gets together, you know, Ben Bernanke and, and Hank Paulson sit everybody down. So we're going to start quantitative easing. You know, that was when the Fed decides we're going to start putting our money into the market. I don't have this particular data up. I wish I did. I'd screen share this where it showed that between uh, January 1, 2009 and the end of March 2010, which is 1.25, well, basically five quarters basically went by, they had injected through the Federal Reserve $1.25 trillion into that mortgage-backed securities market. That is $83 billion a month going into that market. When you think about that, that's a massive amount of money. And there was not enough people borrowing that. They weren't borrowing that kind of capital. But what it was was shaking the people out of the trees that were afraid to borrow. We're now climbing down out of those trees and thinking, well, wait a minute, it's really cheap now. Maybe I should start borrowing money. Maybe I should start buying houses. So it spurred the housing market to start getting traction again. So then they had to start slowing that process down. Instead of putting $83 billion a month in, it tapered down 20 billion, 30 billion, 40 billion until you start getting into 2017. Now, as we saw those peaks from that time, from the end of first quarter 2010 into 2017, the peaks were around $44 billion, averaging probably in the 20 billions per month to where at the end of 2017, we have our new Fed president, which is uh, last name's Powell, took over for Janet Yellen. He decided, wait a minute, we're, our economy is doing awesome, it's strong. We're going to do what's now called quantitative tightening. My friend MC Lobsher, the host of Cashflow Ninja podcast and president of Producers Wealth, is on a mission to help you achieve financial independence as soon as possible. He achieves this by integrating the infinite banking concept and real estate investing to increase your financial efficiency and recapture cash flow that you're not even aware you're losing. MC shares the number one strategy investors use in his holistic wealth creation course, at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. I'll show you a, a screen here that uh, when he decided this quantitative tightening process here, that they were going to, at that point, pull back on what they're injecting in the market. And that happened right here. I don't know if you can see my cursor right there. You see where the, these two lines meet. 
Mm-hmm. That uh, started, there's a draw on the amount of money being borrowed from those pools, you know, banks pulling from it to lend out, but there's less money going in. So as the money is starting to shrink going in, but there's still a draw coming out, you can see that the value or at least the amount of funds in there were dropping. The supply was dropping. And as the supply drops, the cost goes up. It's a supply and demand thing. Well, the rates follow suit. So as this supply dropped, as we're following here, the rates would go up along with it. So back here at this point, I had locked, you know, it was December last year, I was locking many investors in the high fours. Well, now we're seeing things and we're now getting into this, this position here today. You see if I can adjust this, uh, this chart here. This is today's trading. As you can see here, now it's in the, uh, in the high fives, low sixes. So we've seen things increase rate-wise as a result of the supply of funds dropping. You know, so it helps people to understand where it's coming from. Because if you're hopping from bank to bank, you're not doing yourself any good because all our money comes from the same place. It comes from these, these mortgage-backed securities pools. Right. Now, one of the interesting things that I find with this, if we go back to this longer chart, do you remember back during the election when we were getting a new president? Right. What was the anticipation for the stock market if Trump became president? I believe that it would uh, fuel the market and we'd see a big bump. That was the end result that did happen. It was uh, anticipated to actually crash. If you remember during the, while the, uh, the votes were being counted, the stock market was crashing in futures trading, was crashing badly, a thousand points as they were counting the votes. And then the market actually opens and they recovered everything. Well, what happens though, if money moves into stocks, it's got to come from somewhere. Right. So it came from the bond pools. If you look right here, this was the election. The next day when the, when the market opened, stocks soared and the mortgage-backed securities market just plummeted. That drove rates up quite a bit almost overnight. As we can see, there was such a fast trajectory here. Then you get into the point where we've just been on that trajectory ever since. So rates have been going up ever since then. So, but one thing that I like to point out to folks that are really kind of fearful about the interest rates going up, they're thinking, well, is now a good time to still be getting into, into financing investments because rates are going up. My cash flows are going up or going down. My cost is going up. That's right. The cost of the housing is going up, right? Supply is shrinking. Cash flow is shrinking. So one of the things that I like to illustrate is if you look right back here, and this was actually um, a client of mine buying in Memphis, Tennessee. And right here, if we look at this point, it was uh, November of, I think he signed on that contract, the end of October, early November in uh, 2017. Two new build homes, Memphis, Tennessee, same floor plan, same price, same potential rents. The only difference one was one was about finished. They're working on the trim work. The other contract he signed for the exact same, basically the same property just down the street had yet to break ground. So when we closed on property number one, it was in December of last year, the interest rate was 4.75%. Now, fast forward six months, he's ready to close in May of 2018, almost identical property, interest rate was 5.75%. A whole point. A whole percentage. So he calls me up and says, you know, I'm thinking about canceling the contract for property number two. Michael, like, well, why would you do that? He goes, well, I'm losing $600 a month. Like, explain to me how you're losing $600. He goes, well, 1% interest, when you figure factor that in, equals up to about 40, it was like $49 and change every month in total difference in payment. Therefore, I'm only getting the same amount of rent. It's about $600 a month. I'm making less on property two versus property one. So I asked him if he doesn't mind going through an exercise with which he and he agreed. I asked him to go to his accountant dig out what they anticipate his taxes to be like, if it's going to be similar to last year, and then factor in 
what is the taxes he would pay on the cash flow for property one versus property two, because there's higher cash flow, therefore higher taxes. And what was his tax deduction going to be on the interest rate for property two versus property one, because it's higher interest. By the time he was done with that equation at his tax brackets, I believe it was like 30% federal, 10% state. Instead of being $50 a month different, by the time his taxes were done, is it $3.55 per month different? It was inconsequential. So what I really want to share with folks, even though the rates are going to go up, we're going to continue to see this movement, what we're seeing here, it's not something to be so scared of. The reason they shouldn't be so scared of it, because if you're a real estate investor, you're going to be able to take advantage of the tax deductions that have been created around real estate. You know, So that right there offsets up so much of that that you need to look at this as a, a bigger picture. There's money, the revenues and the benefits of real estate come from more than just a cash flow. Right. Yeah. There's five dimensions to it. So that chart that you were showing that probably many people can't see or won't see, it showed a rapid drop in that trend line right after the election and it continued to go down and down and down to the point where it's at now, which looks like it found some sort of bottom temporary or otherwise. Do you foresee this trend continuing into next year where we're going to see a rate increase, another rate increase on the mortgage front? I, I expect to see a rate increase probably later, later this year by the feds, but do you think mortgage rates are con, con, going to continue to go up here over the next six to 12 months? That all depends upon what ends up happening with our stock market, I believe, our economy. So interest rates usually are going to go up when they believe the economy is, doing, is, is strong and it's continuing to thrive. Um, let's go backwards a little bit and see what was the impetus behind the Fed President Powell's decision with this, the governors over the Fed to decide to do the quantitative tightening. They're saying, of course, our economy is doing better. So what's the biggest sector of our economy? Probably housing. It's actually the consumption. Oh, well, yeah, if you're looking at it that way, sure. I don't consider consumption an industry, but... <laughs> True, but 72% of the U.S. GDP is consumption. Absolutely. And Interestingly enough, I had heard from a former uh, member of the central bank indicated that 19 plus percent of the global economy is the U.S. consumer. So when we look at that, that the majority of what goes on in our economy, what drives our GDP is consumption. And we look back in 2017, 2017 showed that the charts, I'm going off of memory here, 5.5 percent of a person's income was being saved. So that was at least what they were looking at first quarter of 2017. Get to, to quarter four, 2017, it had dropped down to 2.4% of their income. Right. So we're seeing that the, that savings is dwindling, right? But spending was way up. Credit was way up. People were borrowing more. Even it wasn't necessarily for housing. You know, they're borrowing for just consumer goods, right? And they're also defaults were up on consumption goods. So when you start seeing that, is our economy really that stable? There's new data coming out right now showing that there's, there's some weakness in the economy more weakness than what's really being published. If that's the case, and this weakness continues, and it really starts to erode at this, especially since the savings is dwindling, incomes, or at least wages, are not pacing inflation very well or cost of living whatsoever. If it starts to go like that, I think stocks are going to, there's a lot of analysts saying stocks are going to wane. If they wane, the money's got to go somewhere. Well, the mortgage-backed security is right now one of the more, it's, it's more secure than it was in the last 20 years just because the underwriting has gotten so tight. Right. Because we have to qualify certain ways. You look back into the creation of that, it was actually very, very clean, secure funds until they started getting into the 90s and getting very irresponsible. 
Right. And that was all because they wanted housing, this American dream thing. Well, that's changing. You know, I think there was, uh, and I'll show another screen here. Uh, I was watching, uh, not watching, but looking around the internet. I started finding this screen, this uh, article popped up where there's the Wall Street Journal saying that Americans are now saying renting is cheaper than owning. You know, Freddie Mac did a study that 78% of people now say that renting is more affordable than owning. That's a big deal. That's a very big deal. As an investor and a landlord, I know that the rental pool out there, probably nationwide, is growing. And that just means there's more demand for rental housing. And if fewer people are buying homes and they still need a place to live and our population is growing, which it is year over year, they need to go somewhere. And so this is where we come in as real estate investors. Exactly. And if we know the cost of housing is going up as far as the acquisition of it. Sure. So it's outpacing those people's wages, their ability to uh, afford that. In fact, I think that was even part of this article. I'm trying to look for it here. But there was, uh, oh, right here, David Brickman, the president of Freddie Mac, and the head of his multifamily division cautioned that renting remains unaffordable for many families, but buying lately has become even more unaffordable. So he's saying buying is, is increasing in unaffordability. So when he's talking about renting being unaffordable, I think we have to look at what markets he's probably talking about. I'd love to find that out. Yeah. It's got to be your coastal markets. So yeah. What that does is forcing people into lower income housing, right? It's not that renting as a whole is unaffordable. But renting in certain areas may be becoming more unaffordable, forcing people into a lower income housing bracket. Therefore, most of the investors who we work with or all the investors we work with are positioned to be able to have a bigger flood of potential tenants. Yes, yes. He's probably referring to the coastal markets because everything is unaffordable in the coastal markets. You know, there, there is no such thing as affordable housing. It just doesn't exist. Politicians talk about it all the time. They can't seem to put a project together that, that is essentially an affordable housing project. There's barely affordable groceries in the damn coastal markets. Right. Yeah. Cost of living is high. But if you focus on the states and markets that we fo stay focused on, the Midwest, down through Texas, on out through the Southeast, and then pockets up in the Northeast, you can still reasonably buy a three-bedroom, two-bath house between one, uh, $100,000 and 300000 Many of those properties make sense from an investment perspective. And so when you look at this data, which does spill over throughout you know, the Midwest and, and throughout the rest of the country, it, it's still positive news, at least for us as real estate investors. It's not good if you're, you're out there and you're trying to buy a home and if you're a millennial trying to get into you know, the market and, and get your first property, your first house to live in. But I don't think this is an issue. It's not a great scenario, but it does play out well for us as investors with a growing rental pool. But you know, continue that line of thinking that you were talking about rates and the direction rates were going. Kind of wrap that up or finish that up. I always look at trends, but I like to see where trends are going. And so where do you foresee – you said it depends. Where do you see rates going? I mean, I, I guess I'm just trying to get you to make a prediction here. <laughs> well, I appreciate the fact you're trying to sucker me into that kind I of thing. I am. But, I'm trying to corner you um, here. You know, it's hard. It really is hard to predict. There's analysts that are very, very bullish on the mortgage-backed securities market. And I'll go back to sharing that chart again. You know, so when we look at that, this whole position, I'm going to get in a little bit deeper in about to the six-month mark here. Now, we've lost, actually, no, I'm going to stick with the six months. So we've seen this, this uh, drop as much as it has. Analysts are saying that we should, they're bullish on the fact that we should be recovering a lot of this ground that we lost because stock market itself, they believe, even though we've been losing ground in the stock market the last month, and these last two days have traded pretty strong, they think that's kind of like a sucker punch. It's one right. of those things where... They're trying to really get get some people interested in going back into stocks 
just so those, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but just so those market movers that are pushing the stocks up right now can sell their, sell their stuff and get out from underneath it at a little bit more of a profit. But if that does happen, traditionally what happens, you can see a market make back about half of its losses during the uh, most recent downward trend. So that would put us you know, making back about 50 to 60 basis points in the mortgage-backed securities market. That could see that could translate to um, you know that could translate to a little bit of a drop back in rates of a quarter percent right. possibly, you know. So uh, getting us back solid into the fives again, kind of hard to say if it would actually do that. Um, if we went back and we retraced what we lost in the last year since the real downward trend started back when the uh, the Fed announced the te- the quantitative tightening, which is right here at where my cursor's at. Well, that puts us right back in here where we're going to gain back somewhere in the range of about. Nope, 250 basis points possibly. That, that could be a very big game changer for us and get us back into the low fives, maybe even potentially bridging the fours again for investors. So it's kind of hard to say what's going to actually end up happening. It could very well be on, on, a, uh, on a run where you start getting into the high sixes again, possibly even bridging the sevens. But if you look backwards to 2006, do you remember what rates were looking like back then? In 06? Yes. Um, they were around six and six and a half, weren't they? Yeah, six and a half for your owner occupied, right? So you start getting into the investors back then. We were writing loans in the sevens and eights, very common high sevens, low eights. I went back and I looked. I don't have that data with me. I have that in the presentation somewhere. I've got to dig up. But I had shown where I found some old market data on a presentation that somebody at Chase had created. And you start looking at the actual cost for rates back then, looking at the different notes, different coupons that were available. Right. The rates we have today, like say, let's just say five and three quarters, for instance. Let's, I'm, I'm just spitballing what it might be for a different investor. Let's say five and three quarters today was like a point. Back then in 2006, when it was no Fed involvement, which is where we're heading, minimal Fed involvement to none, all driven by the market. Back then, the interest rates when people were interested in mortgage-backed securities, putting money into mortgage-backed securities, a five and three-quarter rate for an investor was costing somewhere in the, in the tune of nine points. Wow. Right now, it's one to two. I'll say one and a half, somewhere in there. So when you add that contrast, we're still in a really, really smoking position compared to where we were before the crash. Right. So it's showing that there's still some pretty solid interest in this particular security because of exactly how more secure it is than it was back then. That's just my uh, interpretation of that data. So my based on your chart and what you're saying, my prediction is that rates are probably going to stay pretty stable. They might gyrate up or down a quarter point. But I think there's more of a chance of the rates going up than down at this point. Let's just assume they stay the same or they inch up a marginal amount. What do you think that means to the real estate investor in 2020? Well, I think it's going to shake out quite a few that don't understand how interest rates don't have as big of a play on their end goal as they believe it does. Acquisition and ownership of the property is the biggest play. Right. Now, one of the things I start off with when it comes to speaking with a new investor, I ask them this question. If you bought a piece of real estate that you put your 20% down and you never made a single dollar in cash flow, a single it never went up a single dollar in appreciation, but yet you didn't need to put another dollar into it to maintain it or deal with vacancy and it just took care of itself for the entire 30 years that you own that loan, are you making any return? Right. And you are. And I love the yes. number. 
Exactly. So if you take that, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar piece of real estate, a hundred thousand dollar acquisition, we're putting twenty percent down, and you're going to finance how much, Marco? Twenty thousand. You're putting twenty thousand down. You're financing eighty, right? Oh, you're financing eighty. You're putting twenty down. Exactly. Financing eighty thousand. Now take that eighty thousand, and anybody who's got a calculator, back me up here. Get on your phone. Calculate this number. Divide eighty by thirty, because that's how many years it's going to take to pay it off. So you divide that by thirty years. Is $2,666.66. Then you go and factor that into the original $20,000 that you moved over into that, to that security. It's really like a moving into a security. You moved it from a liquid account, cash, and then you move that over into a piece of real estate. It's still your money. You just moved it where it's not so accessible. You divide that $2,666.66 into the $20,000. What do you get? That would be 13.33333%. Exactly. You're getting 13.33333% gain on your 20 grand every year, averaged over 30 years. Now, I always ask the next question I ask is, what is inflation doing to your cost of living? Well, it's lowering the purchasing power of the dollar. So inflation is just eroding your purchasing power. But I know where you're going with this and I love it. So please tell everybody what it's doing. <laughs> it's pushing great. your cost of living up, right? Yeah. Cost of living is going up which you can actually do for your tenant. You can bring their cost of living up. You can raise rents. But can the bank raise your payment? No, you're locked. No, you're locked for 30 years. So you get to outpace inflation inflation for the next 30 years because they can't adjust that. So let's say, I know the government says it's 2%, right? We know that's crap. Let's say just, let's be kind to them and say it's three. Let's say inflation is really 3% because there's certain things they take out of it. I think it's even more than that. Let's say three. So if you take 3% that you're outpacing just by having it stuck there flat for 30 years and add that to your 13.33333, what do you get? Well, 80,000 times 0.03 is 2,400. 2,400, exactly. Well, you add that point, that, that 3% to the 13.33, really you're bumping up to 16.33% and you've never even had to put a dollar in your pocket yet. Right. Right. So you're making potentially 16 plus percent without putting a dollar in your pocket. Right. So then we start getting into the next steps of, of this. Where's the, where's the value at? Right. So the other value happens to be, you know, we can go into the tax deductibility of it, but I'm going to set that aside because that's between you and your and your accountant uh, to worry about. But where is your 20,000 protected from? There's three things I claim it's true. The, there's the most. Uh, the three big protective pieces, or at least the three things you're protecting it from, I think are the most important ones. What would you claim them to be? Well, inflation would be the, yeah. the first the fact that it's a hard asset and you've just parked it into a hard asset. So you, you've lost the volatility of, of paper assets like the stock market. Correct. Um, so you protect it from inflation. Sure. You've got the st stability of the land. And of course, you have to maintain the commodities above the dirt, but you've got the stability of the land. So protected it there. What can the banks do nowadays if they fall into trouble Called with your deposits? Well, they can call a note due if they really wanted to. But True. But in that situation, I, I don't know that that's ever going to be the case because you know, like we've always said, if you owe the bank $1,000, it's your problem. If you owe a million dollars, it's their problem, right? Well, that's right. But they can take depositors' money, that cash. From what I understand, the rule is now that they can take depositors' cash and issue stock. If they're in a uh, in a floundering position, that's true. I'm out of stock for a reason. I don't know that I want to have more stock in something that we know is going down, right? So that you're protected from. And the final thing I think that is our biggest risk for our cash is ourselves. 
I could easily take that 20 grand and turn it into a boat. And that is not a good investment unless you're using that boat to make money and take people on tours. But for the most part, so, uh, those are the three things I think that we're protecting ourselves from by putting into real estate. So it's a four savings plan is what you're saying. Yeah. And, it, and a protected piece. I mean, it's, it's for savings, but it's also you're avoiding three big issues out there that you have no control over. You can't get well, You can control yourself a little bit, but I, I know a lot of people that can't. And then you've got, uh, you know, of course, inflation and you've got the bank's ability to take those depositors funds. So there's those three things that are a protective piece. On top of that, you've got any cash flow you get whatsoever. I like to go into you know, looking at a $100,000 acquisition, even in today's market with interest rates going up, it's very, very, very probable and plausible that a person can at least realize $250 a month in cash flow on a $100,000 piece of real estate before you factor in maintenance and vacancy. So if they're able to get that before they deal with any maintenance and vacancy, they can use that $250 to pay themselves back their closing costs. So any costs that you had to put in above your down payment, within 24 months, you can put back in your pocket. So you put back your costs in your pocket within 24 months. You've got your 20000 slowly growing to 100000 because it uh, somebody's paying off that note. And if you get 20, take 24 months to pay yourself back that two, with that 250 a month, that 250 can generate another 84000 over the remaining 30 years. So with that, you have now made $164,000 after paying yourself back the closing costs that you use to build your business. And you have your 20 still sitting there because that's your investment into the property. It's generated $84,000. It's also generated another $80,000 because of the payoff of the lien. And a lot of people say, wait a minute, what about that maintenance and vacancy factor? Well, I said, let's get crazy. Let's say it's 40% of the original price. That's 40000 bucks to maintain that property for 30 years. Well, if you buy right, if you are the right runner, if you run your business correctly and you purchase properties that will stay rented and that you can offload a lot of that expense because you bought it right, you don't have to replace the roof more than one time in that 30-year window. You're not replacing mechanicals more than one or two times in that 30-year window. You should be able to maintain that property for 40% of that acquisition price. So you back the 40000 off the 164, you still have 124000 clear profit. After you paid yourself back, you still have your 20000 You have 40000 for all contingencies. That's before rent raises, appreciation, tax benefits, or hedge against inflation. That makes it a pretty sexy investment. You can't get sexier than that. I've tried looking. <laughs> that is true. We, I was just talking to Sean Huss about this, and I was just telling him, look, there's, there's so many ways to make money in real estate, and you don't even need to be an active real estate investor to do it. It's just built into the cake. It's baked into the cake. You're hard-pressed to find anything that, that beats investment real estate. So agreed. And then just looking, I feel do between six and 700 transactions a year where I finance somebody's acquisition of their, of their single family or multi-unit property. And I get to see many people have 10, 15, 20 properties. The one thing I see that's really amazing about it is the, is the tax benefits that come from that and how I've seen some people are at a point where there's zero taxes anymore. So what that tells me, it also enables freedom. If you have the capability to direct where your tax dollars go, their tax dollars that we, they would normally have see come out of their income right. and fund whatever it is the federal government and the state government wants to, they now get to decide where to put that because they are continuing to contribute to the housing and contribute to jobs. And if we follow the same program that the government's trying to follow, they make it capable for you to have the freedom to choose where to put your own tax dollars, which is building your little empire. So that is another unintended benefit that we get to have is the, addition, the additional freedom to choose where to put that money. Is there 
a place where investors mess this up, meaning they either take the wrong strategy with financing their investments, their real estate investments, or maybe underutilize what they could take advantage of when it comes to mortgage financing. Because, you know, let's face it, it's powerful. It's five to one leverage. Rates are still cheap. I don't care whether you call it four, five, six, or even 7%. It's a no-brainer to take advantage of it, but are people, investors screwing it up in the sense that they're just not using it properly? Two things I think they're really screwing it up with. One is is shying away from it because they're listening to what's going on in the media about rates are going sure. up. So they're getting scared that they're not making the revenue. They're treating it like consumers would treat anything, right? So we just talked about 72% of the US economy is consumption. So they're thinking like consumers. What's going in my pocket? What's coming out? Right. They're not thinking about is ILM doing is just moving that money someplace else where it's more secure and it's growing faster than anything else. Right. And failing to see all these benefits we just talked about. It's hard to wire a big chunk of money. I had to do that twice in the last two weeks because it closed on two more properties, even in this higher rate environment. I just closed on two of them at six and an eight. And it doesn't bother me. And I willingly went in there and wired the large sums of money because it makes so much sense. Sure. We as consumers are having a hard time getting past that. So that's number one, having a hard time getting past our consumer mindset. The other is trying to make sense of something when they don't understand. Get a good team. Quit trying to go off the internet and read what everybody else says and then go, I'm going to do it on my own. The second that person does it, they have now basically put them in a position to accomplish what they can with their own best thinking at a very inexperienced level. Experience is everything. You've heard the term good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Right, right. So if that person wants to get the experience, they have to go through the bad judgment. It's much easier to go through the bad judgment of other people. I'd see six to 700 transactions a year. I get to see a lot of judgment at work. You see six, six to 700 transactions a year. You see a lot of people's judgment at work. We get to see how they respond to those issues, the decisions they make, and the outcome. Why in the hell would you go on this by yourself when you can go to myself and yourself and your team and my team who are battle-worn veterans? I've been doing this for damn near 21 years now. Now, I've got a staff. Ellen's been doing this since 1983, for crap's sake, yep. with a staff of 11. And we have a 600-plus per year experience transactionally, which is equal to I think 18 years for the average person in my industry. Sure. My one year, they're 18 and I've got 11 of us. There's a lot of stuff you're leaving on the table if you're not talking to a good, solid group of people. Yeah, that's completely leverageable. All of our shared experience, including the failures, is experience, free knowledge that we can pass along to a new or even a somewhat seasoned real estate investor and help them to grow faster, bigger and faster. I think one hurdle I think investors bump into is the debate of good debt versus bad debt. Some people still believe they come from the Dave Ramsey world, love them or hate them. The thing is, is that people still think that all debt is bad debt and that's just not true because debt will make you wealthy. In fact, I will probably argue that you cannot get wealthy without taking advantage of leverage, without taking advantage of good debt. And here it is. It's, it's available to all of us provided you qualify. People are just cutting themselves short when they ultimately realize that they can get to where they want to go financially a lot faster by taking advantage of what you have to offer. Well, I don't even like to call it debt because the debt word, I mean, good debt, bad debt, I, I think that that even is just a poor use of the word to begin with because sure. it's not, it, it isn't debt. You're taking on a business partner. Think about it this way. 
you know, there's many people who take on partners before and say, hey, we're both going to put up 50% of the funds. We're going to put up 50% of the decision-making capability, 50% of the ownership, and we're going to take 50% of the profits and take 50% of the risk, right? The problem with that is, is you're stuck at, you can be stuck in a situation where you're, you're butting heads with this individual and you're, you can be at an impasse and nothing moves. Well, in this scenario, you're taking on a partner in the form of uh, this loan. They're going to put up 80% of the capital. You are the investor putting up 20% of the capital because this is truly a business. This is a cash flowing business based on an asset, a real estate asset. Sure. And you're literally buying a business for the market value of its sole asset. That's a whole other benefit that we can get into on a whole other level. But you're taking on this partner. They're willing to put up the majority of the capital to buy this business or expand this business of yours, but they're not taking a damn bit of ownership. People f- feel that they are, but they're not. They have terms. As long as you make sure that they get their, in today's market, 5.8 or 6% of their 80% in 12 installments every year, they're out. They leave you alone. They have no decision in it. They get no profits. They don't get to even, they don't even get the benefit of inflation for crap's sake. You get to pay them off with inflation right. over a time. So I don't even think calling it debt is even right. I think anybody who's calling it even good debt is taking too little time to describe what it really is. This is a partnership that you are leveraging way beyond just the 80%. You're levering the hell out of that person. Whoever's putting that money up in reality is getting screwed. Right. No, they are. They are. And banks know this. They just, look, the US, as far as I know, is the only country in the world that offers a 30-year fixed rate product. In fact, even a 15-year fixed rate loan product. The banks know they're losing, but they fully expect that most of these loans, as in like 97% of these mortgage loans, will be refinanced within the first five to seven years. So they're banking that the majority of people are not going to keep the loan forever. They're ultimately going to sell that property and refinance into whatever the rate and terms are of the day. So, But you and I, as real estate investors, taking advantage of this cheap financing and keeping it for, for 30 years, we have inflation as our other partner. It's working for us. It's inflating away that that loan. Whether, whether it's 3% or 6% a year, guess what? That's money in my pocket because I'm going to continue to pay that $500 mortgage payment. And I was, I was just talking about this a little while ago. In five, 10 years from now, that $500 mortgage payment on on the mortgage loan I got today for my most recent property is going to look like, you know, I jokingly say like a Starbucks coffee. It's going to be so small. So, oh, yeah. I mean, we're literally, even for 5%, in 10 years, you're paying it back with 50 cents on the dollar. In 20 years, you're paying it back with zero. And then right. 20 to 30, you're making money. So I just encourage people, you got to get in and understand what you're getting into. And if you're talking to somebody that just wants to regurgitate rates and how do you qualify and not talk to you about the bigger picture, which is how to build your business and safely expand it, I have to have an interest in your business or our, our client's business because if I take care of theirs, mine takes care of itself. That's why we keep growing every year because I spend so much time helping them build it and get their mindset right. You got to think properly. And when you start right. thinking properly, it's amazing how it all lines up. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, good, Aaron. I know we kind of hammered that to death <laughs> over the last 35 <laughs> minutes. Let me stop and say that if you're like me, the list of books you want to read or those that people suggest you read is never ending and always expanding. You simply don't have the time to read them all. Our sponsor, Blinkist, has solved your long list of must-reads once and for all. You see, Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling non-fiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements, so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. 
With Blinkist, you will expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen to it anywhere. I've been a customer for over a year, and I like to listen to Blinkist while I'm driving to and from my office or around the house when I'm doing work in the yard. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for you, our audience. Go to Blinkist.com passive to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled Blink, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com passive to start your free seven-day trial. You can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash passive. What else do you want to talk about? I know we kind of went into this with kind of a general idea of what we wanted to talk about, but we didn't script this at all. It's There was no question, no Q&A here. It was just, let's talk about financing and where the mortgage market is headed. There's, uh, there's so many things we can talk about. There's so many different strategies, so many different things that are going to help a person. I'm, in a, I'm at a point now, I'm bringing my children into it. They range from 12 to 21. I'm building a trust around our future where my children have to be participate. Even at this young age, they have to vote on the investments we go into. They get to interview the people we're investing with. They get to, they have to, but when they start working, start putting 10% of their income into the trust, or they never have access to what the trust generates when they turn 65. I am working on a system. I'm working on a, a, uh, an entire process to help people to create their legacy and to create it in a way that helps their children to move forward and grow themselves in an environment where they can be safe at doing that instead of just, I'm not going to well-fund a bunch of little jerks. They're going to run around with a bunch of money and be a pain in the butt of <laughs> society. They've got to contribute to society, but know that they have something in the future to fall back on when the time comes, and they're going to participate in the construction of it. It's a really, really cool thing. So that I think we want to talk at a different time. We are using uh, whole life policies to, uh, to fund this. I'm using that whole life with my policy, my wife's policy, and all, all of my children have them. So there's many different instruments that couple along with being a real estate investor that add a stronger foundation. And it's just a matter of me taking the time to sit and speak with every single person that wants to talk about it, you know, because I'm doing this myself. I'm not the type of individual who is uh, who's just sitting back and collecting a, a commission check by doing loans. I'm actively seeking better ways to build real estate investment businesses by doing it myself. Cool. So let's wrap it up with a question here. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking of starting to build a real estate portfolio or they're a real estate investor and they're looking to grow their existing portfolio, what kind of tips, advice, or nuggets would you give that person listening to this right now? Go to AaronBChapman.com and set up a, a, <laughs> a, a, a set up an hour to talk. I've got my assistant will set that up because each person is a little bit different and I've talked to thousands of them. And if anything, worst case scenario, it may not be something we do business together on a level of, of lender and borrower. It could be just another opportunity to share thoughts and ideas because I get just as much out of each person I talk with as they get from me. And I think the relationships are going to be one of the strongest things we can ever have. I, feel, sure. I believe we leave this world with two things, relationships and experience. And the only way to get experience is with relationships. The only way to build relationships is with experience. And so I'm open to try and do those as often as I can. I enjoy having conversations with people about their business and how they're, where they're at now, where they want to go. So I believe that we need to be encouraging each other to start making steps towards those really tough choices that end up making us better people and giving us a better future. I agree. And you're definitely a good person to, uh, to speak with and listen to because you kind of take lending to a different level. It's not just about the product and the rate. It's more of a 
strategic and philosophical conversation about why invest in real estate, why use leverage, what is this going to change in your life? How do I kickstart my investing or supercharge what I'm doing? You kind of look at this more from a macro perspective, at least more so than a lot of the people that I talk to. So, Well, you've got to go macro and then you also have to dive into the micro too to make them successful. And what I found is all the banking entities out there have proven you can take a monkey out of a cage, give it a phone and some training, and it will close loans. We know that. I have a lot of contemporaries out there that are very good about spouting off guidelines. We all have the same guidelines. I'm very blessed to work with an organization that has found just easier paths to get them done. It's not so complicated yeah. as it is with other places. And also the beyond 10 finance properties, a lot of people are capped at that Fannie Freddie 20% down 10 where we're finding more options out there. So there's a lot of better things that we can discuss if we just get on the line together. Then, of course, I want to be sure that they understand what they're getting in working with Narada and your team. What I believe is some of the, I guess, an assembly of the best minds in real estate under one roof, as far as I'm concerned, is your team. You have selected some specific people to fit those roles that identify with the investor better than most I've ever interacted with. And I appreciate your continued trust in me. And I'll always want to be here to back you guys up. I really appreciate all that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I think one of the big takeaways from this particular episode is this. Don't get hung up on rates. Mortgages and lenders are a team player and a tool to help you achieve your financial goals. And if you look at it that way and you bring it on and you adopt it, you can do a lot of great things with real estate. So it's really a tool. It's not, <laughs> you call it a negative thing when I say good debt, but I don't mean that in a negative context. It really is a good tool. And so the takeaway for me, you know, in listening to you is, look, it is what it is. It doesn't matter whether the rates are 4% or 8%. Learn how to use it to your advantage. Learn how to leverage it and learn how to get to where you want to get to faster. So that's-, that's Great, couldn't say it better. I'm just going to leave it at that. Aaron, I appreciate you coming on again. It's uh, It's been a blast. Um, we'll have to ha get you on every six months or so just so we can uh, keep up on top of <laughs> all these these ideas and, and where things are headed. Well, let's, put it, let's just put it on the calendar. Just yeah. make it appear. Yeah, we'll do right. it. Cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, allowing me back on to uh, to spout off the way that I do. Oh, and yeah. then Anytime. Uh, and also being on the very first video version. That's awesome. I think you are my first video interview on the podcast. So we're going to multi-purpose this one for sure. Yeah, no kidding. And they get to see the most unusual lender in existence now. For anybody listening to this that is not watching it on video, I think you should get on YouTube or wherever I'm going to post this video because uh, Aaron has this amazing braided beard. <laughs> is, that, yep. is that what you want to call it? <laughs> it? Well, it is a beard. If I take this thing out, man, it's about yay wide and it uh, it has a mind of its own. Y'all see it start choking people if I don't control it. But what it really boils down to this 2008, I woke up in the hospital with a beard. And so um, I decided I was in a wheelchair. I had to learn how to walk again. I decided I was not going to trim it until I learned how to walk again. It was about almost two inches long when I learned how to take my first step again. And I just left it and let it grow. And I thought, you know, this is part of me now. This reminds me where I had to come from. And so now I just don't shave it off. And then, of course, the hat. I always wear the hat. It's got a chainsaw logo on it. It's because, in my opinion, there is no more powerful and useful hand tool than a chainsaw because of all that you can do with it, right? You can take down trees, you can build a house, you can carve a swan, right? If you want to out of ice, people do this, but it's also the most dangerous hand tool because misused, even bare, just slightly misused can maim you or kill you. 
The same thing about what goes on between our ears. Our mind is the most powerful tool we have. It can be used for good. It can use to point you in the right direction. It can create for you. But if misused, it's destructive. And so it's, a, it's another reminder of myself. One's a reminder of where I've come from. And this is a remind me of being cautious about what I have available to me and not misusing it. I always uh, talk to a lot about people about focusing their mind properly. There's a, a YouTube video out there that Joe Dispenza put up about, he talked in Tacoma on this. It's a uh, TEDx talk where he illustrates and shows an actual uh, neuron connecting with a neuron, another neuron during the process of thought. He says, and if you put in the wrong thoughts, you'll connect the wrong wiring. It's an, it's an amazing thing that I encourage people to look up is the Tacoma TEDx with uh, Joe Dispenza on it. Check that out. Once you understand how your mind works when you think improperly, you will be very, very uh, guarded about what you allow into your mind. And that's where I'm at now. And that's the reason I wear that hat. I love it. Yeah, Aaron, you're one of those guys that, you know, you're, you're just a really smart guy, very personable. But if no one has ever met you or seen you and like seen you with their own eyes, what they hear is almost a mismatch from what they see. So this is proof that you should never judge a book by its cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was actually, I was in New York having dinner with a guy and he, I'm waiting. I told him I was here. He showed up about 10 minutes late as he's walking in. He's looking around, looking around. I had to approach him. He moved out of the way to let me out the door as I'm coming up. And I stopped in front of him and put my hand out, said, I'm Aaron Chapman. He's like, what are you shaking from? And he goes, you look like you. I was like, what would you expect? He goes, well, see that guy out there? And he pointed out the window. There's a guy sitting there with a lime green polo on and glasses and receding hair. He goes, I went up to him and asked him if you're Aaron Chapman because that's what I pictured when I talked to you on the phone. And I'm nice. like, well, thanks, dude. So it's kind of cool to see, see somebody's reaction. Cool. Aaron, hey, thanks for coming on. This has been great. We're going to publish this soon. So um, hope you have a great day and we'll have you back on soon. Thank you, sir. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.